Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey, hello, and how are you? And welcome to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss some of the best moments, best names, and best memories in sports history. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and I hope that you're having a good day, good evening, or good night, wherever and whenever you're listening. And we're back again with another show highlighting the best in sports history. And I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to give us a quick listen. And as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear here. And check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. On this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, we're going to talk about what a lot of people are talking about this week. And that is the NCAA Basketball Tournament. This past week, a total of 68 teams began their run to be crowned national champs in New Orleans in the first week of April. Now, after being whittled down to 16, we're going to take a look at what has taken place thus far and how it compares to other tournaments over the years. We're also going to take a look at the field of 68 teams through the prism of history and what impact that some of the schools have had in the history of the tournament as well as college basketball as a whole. Later on in the show, we're going to be sending a shout out to a team that changed the face of college basketball. A little-known team from West Texas in 1966 had one of the most memorable and also important runs in the history of the NCAA tournament. And also, of course, would be our weekly top five, the top five consequential events that took place between the dates of March the 14th and March 21st. So sit back, pump up the volume, because you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com. Hello and welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and you're locked into the Historically Speaking Sports podcast where we relive the best that the history of sports could offer. Right now is our main event segment, 
where we're going to analyze one of the most anticipated weekends in sports. And that is the first weekend of the NCAA basketball tournament known affectionately as March Madness. Now, so far it has not disappointed as we've seen upsets and brackets being busted, namely mine, after the first four days of the tournament. A total of 68 teams from various parts of the country began their journey on the road to a national championship where this year ends up in a familiar place, which is New Orleans, which will be hosting its sixth Final Four and its first since 2012 when John Calipari won his first title with Kentucky. I guess that won't be happening this year. This, this year. Uh, this year's field, field is filled with teams capable of cutting down the nets in the Big Easy on April the 4th. And as we've seen so far, it has been the most wide open and most competitive field that we've had in recent years, and it has been evident over this past weekend. Now, on this segment, the main event, we're not going to analyze each team's strengths and weaknesses or strengths of team schedule or any of those things, but we're going to talk about the tournament as a whole from a historical perspective as well as from a fan's point of view. And we're going to start out west. We're going to start with Gonzaga, who's once again in the tournament as the number one seed and one of the prohibitive favorites to win the whole tournament. After all, the Zags have been one of the top teams all season and has won, and was one game short of winning the tournament last year. Gonzaga, besides being the alma mater of NBA all-time assistant steals leader John Stockton, they first gained the reputation of being a giant killer in the NCAA tournament going all the way back to 1999 as they made a run to the Elite Eight by knocking off the likes of Minnesota, Stanford, and a thrilling 73-72 upset of Florida in Phoenix to advance to the regional final. The Bulldogs' opponent in the first round was Georgia State, which had a memorable one in the tournament themselves. In 2015, the Panthers scored a major upset in the tournament, beating Baylor, thanks to a deep three-point shot from R.J. Hunter, which produced one of the most memorable images of that tournament, or any tournament, as his dad, Panthers coach Ron Hunter, who was nursing a torn Achilles tendon, who was forced to coach from a rolling stool, literally falling off the school when his son hit the big shot. One shining moment indeed, and quite nearly had another as they gave the Bulldogs all they could handle as they led by double digits midway through the first half. Yet the Zags pulled it together and claimed a 93-72 win over the Panthers. Another traditional power that had a rough go over in the first round in the West bracket was Michigan State, who edged Davidson College, the alma mater of two, you know, in this matchup you had the alma maters of two of the greatest players in the history of basketball. Irvin Magic Johnson of Michigan State and Steph Curry, who made a name for himself by leading the Wildcats to a deep run in the tournament in 2008 by beating the lights of Gonzaga, Georgetown, and Wisconsin en route to an appearance in the Elite Eight. Michigan State, coached by Tom Izzo, is looking for that school's third national title. Magic led the Spartans to a national championship over Larry Bird in Indiana State in 1979, which is still the highest-rated national championship game ever. In 2000, the Spartans would win their second national title led by tournament most outstanding player Mateen Cleaves and the Flintstones, Morris Peterson, Jason Richardson, and Charlie Bell. This year, the Spartans edged Davidson, the fighting Steph Currys, or Wildcats, 74-73 to advance to the second round where they faced a very familiar foe. This year's sentiment of favorite, the Duke Blue Devils. Coach Mike Krzyzewski is coaching his final in his final tournament. 
And Coach K has won more games as head coach than anyone in history and is eyeing one last championship before walking off the court for the final time. Duke is one of the winningest programs in the history of college basketball, and actually, that was the case long before Coach K arrived in Durham. Under Coach K, the Blue Devils won five national titles and will be eyeing a sixth in his swan song as coach. After, be- after beating 15th seeded Cal State Fullerton, who I consider the Duke Blue Devils of college baseball, Coach K and the Blue Devils faced, a- faced off against the Spartans for the sixth time in the tournament, the most numerous matchup in tournament history. On this day, Coach K's farewell tour continued, beating Michigan State 85-76 in a classic. This bracket was not free from upsets, however. The Aggies of New Mexico State, seeded 12th, defeated tournament mainstay UConn 70-63 to get the upsets rolling on the first day of the tournament. Now, moving our attention to the East, or shall I say the bracket of champions, In addition to Baylor, who won the tournament's final last year's Final Four, a total of 35 combined national titles were in this bracket alone. And by the end of the first day, it would also be the location of the tournament's largest upset. The Baylor Bears were looking to be the first school to repeat as national champs since Florida in 2006 and 07, which featured the likes of Al Harford, Joe Kimdor, and coached by Billy Donovan. Their opponent in the first round was Norfolk State, the representative of the MEAC Conference, one of the conferences that comprise historical black colleges and universities. One of their most notable play, two of their most notable players in program history was basketball Hall of Famer Bob Dandridge and New York playground legend Pee Wee Kirkland. After dispatching Norfolk State, the Bears ran into traditional power in college basketball blue blood North Carolina. In this bracket of champions, North Carolina, with their six national titles, opened against Marquette, who won their only national title in 1977, led by the brilliant and humorous head coach Al McGuire. UNC defeated the Golden Eagles 95-63 and to advance to the Sweet 16. The Tor Heels pulled off the upset in seeding only by beating Baylor 93-86. Also in this bracket is Indiana, with their five national titles who played in the opening round game against the Wyoming Cowboys, who won their lone NCAA title in 1943. Indiana's stay in the tournament, however, didn't last long, as the Gales of St. Mary's clipped the Hoosiers 82-53. Then there are the UCLA Bruins, the greatest dynasty in the history of college basketball. The names that are part of this dynasty have been legendary, from Lou Alcindor to Bill Walton to Marcus Johnson to Gail Goodrich and Walt Hazard to Sidney Wicks. At the center of it all was the Wizard of Westwood, John Robert Wooden, who won 10 national championships in 12 years, had an 88-game winning streak, and also an incredible 38-game winning streak in the tournament. The Bruins' last title came in 1995, led by Ed and Charles O'Bannon as they denied Arkansas a second consecutive national championship. UCLA slipped past Akron 57-53, then defeated the Gales 72-56 to advance to the Sweet 16. While UCLA has 11 titles, the Kentucky Wildcats have the second most with eight. The Wildcats have been a staple in the tournament dating back to the days of the Baron of the Bluegrass, Adolph Rupp. The Wildcats, led by coach John Calipari, were looking to recapture the magic as he looks to lead his team back to New Orleans and where he won his first title when he opened the tournament against St. Peter's, a tournament which run which would be cut very short. 
in one of the biggest tournament upsets in recent memory, the Peacocks. Yes, the Peacocks strutted their stuff against one of the elite teams in college basketball history, beating Kentucky 85 to 79 in overtime. The Peacocks were not alone, were not one and done like what Kentucky is known for one way or another. St. Peter's defeated another team based in Kentucky, the Racers of Murray State, claiming a 70 to 60 win to advance to that school's Sweet 60, first Sweet 16. Also in his bracket of champions are the University of San Francisco Dons, who won back-to-back titles in 1955 and 56, led by head coach Phil Wolpert and future Basketball Hall of Fame teammates Bill Russell and Casey Jones, who would later be key contributors to the Celtic dynasties of the 50s and 60s. The Racers had defeated the Dons in the first round, 92-87. to Now, moving on to the South region, the Arizona Wildcats, the top seed, and my pick to win it all. Arizona has been a consistent competitor in March Madness over the last 30 years, winning it all in 1997 with the likes of Mike Bibby, Jason Terry, Michael Dickerson, and tournament most outstanding player in 97, Miles Simon. A couple of interesting points about that team in 97, though. One, they were the first team to win a national championship without a single senior on the roster, and also the first team to beat three number one seeds in one tournament. The Wildcats defeated a Paul Pierce-led Kansas Jayhawk team in the Sweet 16. Then after moving past Providence, Arizona knocked off Vince Carter, Antoine Jameson, and North Carolina in the Final Four, and then prevailed in overtime over Rich Pitino in Kentucky in Indianapolis for the University of Arizona's only national title. Arizona defeated Wright State to start the tournament and needed overtime in San Diego to beat a tough, hard-nosed TCU team 85-80. to Also in the tournament looking to rekindle some fond memories of past tournament success is the University of Houston, who was in the Final Four last year and was looking to capture that school's elusive first national championship despite having some of the finest players in the history of college basketball. With the likes of Elvin Hayes and two key members of basketball's first basketball fraternity, Phi Slamma Jam in the early 1980s. That is, of course, Clyde Drexler and Akeem Olajuwon. The Cougars, who battled Alabama-Birmingham to open the tournament, then defeated Big Ten Power Illinois to to advance to the Sweet 16. Interesting note, the Cougars' win over the Fighting Illini was the first time the Cougars had beaten a single-digit seed in the tournament since the Final Four of 1984 when the Kim led Cougars defeated Virginia in Seattle. Also in the South bracket will be Tennessee, is Tennessee. They will take on former Division II power Longwood College. Fans of the Vols not only remember the dominance of the women's team, but also those great Tennessee men's teams of the late 70s with Ernie Grunfield and Bernard King, known, of course, as the Bernie and Ernie Show in Knoxville. Tennessee failed to reach the Sweet 16 as Michigan Wolverines defeated the Vols 76-68 and advanced to face Villanova. Then there is the team that captured the hearts and imaginations of an entire country a couple of seasons ago, and that is the Ramblers of Loyola, Chicago. Now, the Ramblers, despite their recent rise to power in reaching the Final Four in 2018, they actually won it all in 1963, led by tournament most outstanding player Jerry Harkness. 
Their opponents in the opening round was Ohio State, who were looking to return to their glory years of the early 60s, which saw them win it all in 1960, beating California for the national title. This talent-laden team was paced by future Hall of Famers Jerry Lucas, John Havlicek, and a future Indiana University coach named Robert Montgomery Knight. Ohio State eventually fell to Villanova, who was looking for that school's fourth national title and third under head coach Jay Wright. And to wrap things up, we're going to head out to the Midwest bracket, and which I like to call the football bracket. Now, this bracket is filled with schools that are synonymous with the gridiron instead of the hardwood. The top seed in this bracket is actually one of college basketball's blue bloods, and that is the University of Kansas who will be looking to claim its school's fourth national title and its first since 2008 as they will open the tournament against Texas Southern. The Jayhawks are looking to win its second national championship under head coach Bill Self, so, and so far so good. After beating the Tigers, the Jayhawks advanced to the Sweet 16 in a hard-fought 79-72 win over Creighton. Yet this side of the bracket is filled with teams that had made a name for itself on the football field. For example, second-seeded Auburn. After beating the Gamecocks of Jacksonville State, faced off against the University of Miami. You had Auburn versus Miami in the basketball tournament game and not the Sugar Bowl. Yet the Kings surprised the Tigers by upsetting the number two seed 79-61 in Greenville, South Carolina. Other matchups included San Diego State, who did lost to Creighton 72-69, and then there was the other major upset in the first round of the tournament, Iowa, who was coming off their win in the Big Ten tournament, faced off against current former and current giant killer Richmond, who have a history of scoring major tournament upsets, including beating Charles Barkley's Auburn team in 1984 reaching the Sweet 16 in 1988 and becoming the first 15 seed to beat a number two, knocking off Jim Beheim in Syracuse in 1991. The Spiders kept it close throughout their game against the Hawkeyes and would prevail 67-63, yet will fall in the next round to the Providence Friars 79-51. So far, this tournament has not yet disappointed, not even in the least bit. And even though my bracket at this point is shot to hell, my pick to win it all, Arizona, is still alive. For now. And that is this episode's main event. Now, coming up next will be the top five historical events that took place between the dates of March the 14th and March 21st. Included in this week's top five are basketball icon and back-to-back college basketball titles, two sports franchises that change addresses, the birth of a league at the dawn of the 20th century, and the return of a sports and cultural icon of a more than a year-long hiatus. Coming up after this, you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network. And whenever you go to a sporting event, do you tailgate? 
for me, I absolutely do. I eat, I drink, I socialize, and I have been known to trash talk from time to time. Now, if you haven't, have you ever considered it? Tailgating is a time-honored tradition, and it doesn't matter if it's high school, college, the pros, it doesn't matter what sport, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, what, house soccer, whatever. Tailgating is all around us, and for the past couple of weeks here on the network, some of the members of the Sports History Network were lucky enough to share a conversation with a friend of the network named Luke Lorick, who is a founder and CEO of Tailgating Challenge. Luke founded Tailgating Challenge in 2012 to share his passion for tailgating with the entire world. Tailgating Challenge is the world's leading site to learn all about the new tailgating gear and other aspects of tailgating, and fan, then fans get a chance to win fun items each and every week. And speaking of giveaways, Luke is gracious enough to share a Tailgating Challenge swag bag with one Lucky Sports History Network follower. And to enter, go to the Sports History Network website, which is sportshistorynetwork.com, and hit the link for Tailgating Challenge, and enter it for your chance to win. Once again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com, and click on the link that gets you that swag. Now, also check out our Twitter feed, at historically sp2 for your daily dose of sports history and also you could drop us a line or two at our email address which is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com and finally don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever and wherever you hear this podcast on any platform that you listen to so you can get new episodes anytime they come out and now this week's top five where we count down the five biggest and most memorable sports moments that we that's that we're celebrating anniversaries of during the week of March the 14th through March the 24th 21st excuse me so here we go number five Bill Russell and the University of San Francisco win back-to-back national titles now before Bill Russell became the centerpiece of the greatest dynasty in NBA history he was the center of one of the best basketball teams during the decade of the 1950s Along with future Celtic teammate Casey Jones, Bill Russell led the University of San Francisco Dons to back-to-back national titles in 1955 and 1956. The Dons, coached by head coach Phil Wolpert, claimed their first championship in 1955 by defeating LaSalle 77-63 on March 19, 1955. That season, the Dons finished with a mark of 26-1 overall and was a prohibitive favorite the next season with Russell and Jones returning to the Bay Area. In the 1956 season, the Dons not only won their second consecutive national championship, they did it going wire to wire as the top team in the country and finishing the season undefeated. They ended the season with their second straight national championship by beating Iowa 83-71. Russell finished his career at the University of San Francisco, averaging 21 points and 21 rebounds per game in his final two seasons with the Dons. Number 4. The Cincinnati Royals moved to Kansas City. This week in 1972, the Cincinnati Royals, beset by low attendance at the Cincinnati Gardens, announced their intention to move to Kansas City, Missouri for the 1972-73 NBA season. Now known as the Sacramento Kings, this franchise has been sort of an NBA vagabond throughout their history. The team entered the league in 1948 as the Rochester Royals and by 1951 had claimed an NBA title by beating the New York Knicks in seven games 
for its franchise's only NBA title. But by the end of the 1957 season, the Royals were looking for another kingdom and decided to move from upstate New York to southern Ohio and Cincinnati, where the college team there had an up-and-coming superstar already in town named Oscar Robertson. Robertson would join the Royals in 1960 and the team enjoyed moderate success. Along with Robinson, the Royals had Jack Twyman, Jerry Lucas, and Wayne Embry. Yet by the end of the 60s, the Royals were struggling with a struggling outfit and it began to show in low attendance. After the Big O was traded to the expansion Milwaukee Bucks, attendance really declined and the decision was made to move the team to Kansas City where the team would change their name to the Kings and split time between Kansas City and Omaha, Nebraska and being named the Kansas City Omaha Kings which only lasted for three seasons. Number three, the Chicago Cardinals announced their move to St. Louis. The Cardinals are the oldest pro football franchise and it started in Chicago in 1897 and one and had one of two pro football championships the most recent coming in 1947 yet by the end of the 1950s the cardinals were not in a position to compete with the crosstown bears either on the field or on the balance sheet so by march of 1959 after coming off of a 2 and 10 regular season the cardinals decided to move the team to st louis leaving the bears in the windy city behind the Cardinals would stay in the city of the Gateway Arch until 1987, where they would move to the deserts of the Southwest in Phoenix, Arizona, and soon after to the suburb of Glendale, Arizona. During their time in St. Louis, they shared their stadium with their more famous baseball team that shared not only the stadium but their nickname. The glory years of that team were in the mid-1970s with head coach Don Coriel and players like Jim Hart at quarterback, Terry Metcalf at running back, and kick returner Mel Gray. Number 2. Van Johnson forms the American League Former sports writer and baseball executive ben Byron Bancroft Johnson determined to start a league that had cheaper ticket prices and had better and cleaner play started the American League out of, the, out of a failed minor league circuit called the Western League. And just like its rival, the National League that had begun in 1876, the American League would have eight teams in cities that were no longer in the National League but were starved for baseball. On March 16, 1900, Van Johnson announced the start of his new league which would start in April of the following year. The teams in the new American League would be the Philadelphia Athletics, the Baltimore Orioles, later the New York Highlander, which of course became the New York Yankees, the Detroit Tigers, the Cleveland Spiders, later the Indians, the Chicago White Sox, the Boston Americans, which you now know as the Boston Red Sox, the Washington Senators, and Milwaukee Brewers, which later became the St. Louis Browns. These would become the backbone of the American League for the next century of baseball. And finally, the number one event of this past week, Michael Jordan returns to the Bulls after a 17-month retirement. In October of 1993, after winning his third consecutive NBA title with the Bulls, Michael Jordan announced his retirement from basketball that rocked the sports world. To satisfy his insatiable appetite for competition, Jordan would join the minor league Birmingham Barons in minor league baseball to try to play baseball. After nearly a year and a half of playing baseball the, and fans speculating whether he would return to basketball, finally got their answer in a two-word fact sent to the NBA which read simply, I'm back. 
On March 29, 1995, Michael Jordan laced up his Jordans and returned to the starting lineup of the Bulls wearing number 45 to take on rival Indiana and Reggie Miller. After a 17-month hiatus from basketball, the rustiness showed as Jordan finished with 19 points and a 103-96 defeat of the Pacers. Even though they lost, Jordan was back and would lead them to the postseason where they would eventually lose to the eventual Eastern Conference champ Orlando Magic in the playoffs. And eventually, in past that year, he would lead the Bulls to three more NBA titles in, 90, in 1996, 97, and 98. And that was this week's Top 5. And coming up next is our shout-out segment. And we're going to send a shout-out to a team that pulled off a major upset in the, NBA fi- in the NCAA Finals, I should say, over 50 years ago that was monumental in changing the game forever. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and we're back now to wrap things up for our episode of Historically Speaking Sports. And we're back with our final segment, which we call our shout out. Now, this episode, we're going to send a shout out to a team that, in the words of sports writer Curry Kirkpatrick, changed the sport forever and maybe even changed a nation. On March 19, 1966, at Coldfield House on the campus of the University of Maryland, two teams would meet for the championship of college basketball that could not have been more different. On one side was a top-ranked University of Kentucky, led by the Baron of the Bluegrass, Adolph Rupp, taking on a relative unknown team from El Paso, Texas, the Texas Western Miners, who would later be known as UTEP, the University of Texas, University of Texas El Paso, who was ranked third in the country. The Miners featured an all-black starting lineup for the first time in a national championship game, while Kentucky, by contrast, started an all-white starting five that included Louis Dampier and future NBA Hall of Fame coach Pat Riley. When the dust settled, Texas Western, behind head coach Don Haskins and center David Latin, defeated Kentucky 72-65, becoming the first school from a state of Texas to win a college basketball national championship and the last until 2021 when Baylor cut down the nets. Now, Texas Western during the season had won 23 consecutive games before losing to two points to the University of Seattle in the final game of the regular season. Offensively, they were led by point guard Bobby Joe Hill, who averaged 15 points per game, while David Latin chipped in with 14 points and 9 rebounds per contest. When the 1966 tournament started, the Miners replaced in the Midwest region of the tournament and opened with a 15-point victory over Oklahoma. 
Then after an overtime nail-biter over the Bearcats of Cincinnati, the Miners would take on the elite program of the University of Kansas in the regional final and future NBA Hall of Famer Jojo White. Texas Western needed double overtime to outlast the Jayhawks 81-80 and advance to the Final Four in Maryland where the Utah Utes were, were waiting for them. In the national semifinal, the Miners overcame 38-point output by Utah All-American Jerry Chambers. And to win by seven, guard Austin Artis led the Miners with 22 points, while Bobby Joe Hill had 18 and Willie Worsley added 12 to set up the final, set up the NCAA finals against Kentucky. In the national final, David Latin, despite early foul trouble, delivered on several devastating dunks to send a message to Kentucky. The turning point of the first half, however, came with Hill getting two straight steals, which led to layoffs to extend the lead over Kentucky. The Miners maintained the lead for the remainder of the first half and went into halftime with a 34-31 advantage. In the second half, Kentucky rallied to within one point in the opening minutes of the half, but could not overcome the Miners' advantage thanks to an impressive showing at the free throw line. Over a 37-minute period, the Miners attempted 27 free throws, making all but one. Ultimately, the Miners took a nine-point lead and was able to control the pace of play. As power forward Willie Cager dribbled out the last few seconds of the game, the Miners were national champions and struck a blow against the stereotypes of the time that blacks had no self-control and would crack under the pressure of championship play. Former player Willie Worsley said later, there were a certain style of play whites expected from blacks, but we were a more white-oriented team than any other teams in the Final Four in terms of playing with discipline. From that point, that opened the way for more African-Americans play, African-American players to play in major conferences, including the SEC. It's interesting to note, during the era of time between Rupp's retirement in 1972 and the era of John Calipari at the University of Kentucky, the Wildcats won three national championships. In 1978, the Wildcats' best player and most outstanding player in that year's Final Four was black, Jack Givens. The Wildcats won again in 1996 with Rick Pitino as head coach, with an all-black starting five. And in two seasons later, in 1998, Kentucky would win their third national title in the post-Rupp era with the African-American coach, Tubby Smith. And that and it could be partly traced back to the Texas Western and that incredible tournament run in 1966. And so that does it for this show. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. And also feel free to drop us a line here at Historically Speaking Sports. And the email address, once again, is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Or check us out on our Twitter page at historicallysp2. And until next time, thanks for listening, and so long. Hey there, Sports History fan. 
This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.